It's Thursday, January 5th, and we got to talk about the Georgia TCU preview before Monday night's big national championship game. We got to talk about the candidates for the Michigan job if Jim Harbaugh were to leave. Did the Pac-12 commissioner lie? And do the Big 12 or the Pac-12 decide to take Fresno State after a new city push? We got a lot to talk about on today's Winning Cures Everything. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Football. I've been watching it for 40 years. Are you kidding me? You're listening to Winning Cures Everything. Game day, baby. Wake up or get out. Here's your host. A confident young man. A superb athlete. Gary Seegers. Welcome in Winning Cures Everything. It is Season 8, Episode 2. Thursday, January the 5th. I'm your host, Gary Seegers. You can follow me on Twitter, at GaryWCE. If you're watching on YouTube, you see uh, things look a little bit different. We're going to try and get more of the screen in here. Hopefully you guys will like that. Give me some feedback, if you would so kindly. Let me go ahead and start out by telling you, if you're in the chat, if you're watching live, or if you're watching in the replay, toss in your city or town in the chat. I want to know where you guys are watching from. Would love to hear from you. Also, got to go on and tell you, the show is brought to you by BetUS. It's America's premier online sportsbook, America's favorite sportsbook since 1994. Fantastic payouts, quick payouts, uh, incredible customer service, etc. They they do all the things right. So go and check them out. BetUS, it is where the game begins. And uh, I'm going to hook you up with a little bit of a deal. If you click the link in the description, you can sign up for a $50 free play. No deposit required. You don't actually have to deposit money. In there, they will just give you money to play with. Now, obviously, there's rules and restrictions and all that kind of mess, but go and check it out. Read the fine print if you must, of course. I highly recommend. But uh, but check it out, betus.com. Go and check them out. All right, we got a lot to discuss today. Let's go on and start off with uh, number one here. We're, we're going to start right off the bat, and that would be the Georgia and TCU College Football Playoff National championship game and we are going to start of course with the numbers here Georgia is currently a 12 point favorite it has come down from 13 and a half the total opened at 64 it is down to 63 so let's see what the numbers say uh my projected total here even opponent adjusted all that kind of mess is 69 on this and I've got Georgia winning eh, 40 to 29 somewhere around there I've got Georgia favored by 11.29 now this is based on stats from week eight of the season through the end of the year. Now, why this could be a little weird is TCU is significantly healthier now. Obviously, we're 
looking at the Kendra Miller stuff, right? Kendra Miller may not play in this game. Who knows? Uh, I think he's going to try and give it a go, but he tweaked a knee, and that's that's obviously an issue. But let's uh, let's look at some of the numbers and kind of get an idea of what we're looking at here. Uh, it's number one versus number two as far as strength of record is concerned. Strength of schedule, TCU number 11, Georgia number 12. Georgia has played more top-end teams. Uh, TCU has played just strong team after strong team after strong team. So they continue to uh, to do these things. Uh, they continue to play against tough competition, and uh, and they don't get blown out by anybody because they've won every game but one, and they lost that one in overtime on a field goal. Uh, and really, depending on where you think that spot was, they probably won that game against Kansas State. But either way, we're not going to go there. What we're going to do is talk about who has an advantage here, and obviously Georgia has a big advantage. Uh, their offense, since week eight, number three in PPA per pass, number four in passing success rate, that TCU defense, number 18 PPA per pass allowed, number 31 passing success rate allowed. Uh, Georgia's explosive play rate, uh, as far as passing, number 48 in the country, TCU's defense, number 85. So TCU, uh, they, they can give up a big play here and there. Uh, same thing on the other side as far as rushing the ball. TCU's defense, number 79, rushing explosiveness allowed. And Georgia's offense, number 56 in rushing explosiveness. Uh, Georgia is not as good at running the football as, as one might think that they are. They're number 84 PPA per rush versus TCU, number 76 on defense. Uh, Georgia is number 69 in rushing success rate. And they are number, uh, TCU is number 73. There's just not a lot good there, and yet, when you look at standard downs PPA, standard down success, uh, Georgia does a lot of their damage on early downs. Number 22, standard downs PPA, and they are, uh, let's see, da, 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 I lost it, I lost it. Uh, number 46 in standard down success against number 74 for TCU's defense. So, Georgia, we believe, has an advantage on the offensive side of the ball. <clears throat> what about when TCU has the ball. TCU, number 57 PPA per pass, number 67 passing success rate. Well, that is against Georgia's defense, number 26 PPA per pass allowed, and number 50 passing success rate. Uh, PPA per rush, TCU did a pretty good job running the ball against Michigan. Uh, they were able to disguise it, scheme it in different ways, and that's that's the biggest advantage that I think for TCU here. Uh, but PPA per rush, the number 67 since week eight, Georgia's defense, number 11 there, and TCU number 63 rushing success rate, uh, Georgia's defense number 19 on that. Uh, there's not Georgia does not give up a lot of explosive plays. Uh, they are number 41 in passing explosiveness allowed, number 18 in rushing explosiveness allowed. So uh, there's not a, a ton of an advantage here for TCU on either side of the ball. But one thing that I always like to look at here, I'm sure you can see it on your screen where I just highlighted Turnover margin. That is a big, big issue here. Uh, TCU is number 17 in the country in turnover margin. Georgia is number 75. Georgia does not create takeaways, and TCU doesn't really turn the ball over much. TCU is number 14 in the country in giveaways per game. Georgia on defense, number 102 in takeaways. Georgia on offense, number 44 in giveaways. Uh, TCU's defense, number 50 in takeaways. So, Eh, both are about average uh, in that regard, but when TCU is on offense, they don't really turn the ball over. Uh, that three-turnover game that they had against Michigan, that's a bit of an anomaly. Uh, when I look at this, I, I see like points per game margin. I see 
defensive and offensive red zone conversion percentage, etc. My number is within the 12 here, but man, the talent differential is just massive. I mean, it is huge. Uh, if Darnell Washington is out in this game, it's going to change a lot of what they do. Uh, I think the fact that Georgia does have a lot of those skill guys. I, now, don't get me wrong. I think that the the uh, the spill and kill uh, defense that Joe Gillespie runs is going to be effective against Stetson Bennett, especially early. But I think Georgia's going to be able to score points, like a lot of points. I don't know that TCU is going to be able to score a lot. So, eh, this thing's under two touchdowns. Like, I've gone back and forth, back and forth on this. I think at this point in time, I think even though I was leaning TCU, even on the BetUS show, I think at this point with how much public uh, support there is on TCU, I'm probably going to have to go Georgia. I'm going to go against my number here. Uh, I'm going to go Georgia minus the 12. Um, I think that number is going to get a little bit lower, so I wouldn't exactly take it right now. But, yeah, that's uh, that's one to pay attention to. I would certainly, certainly watch out for that one. Georgia minus 12 is the way that I'm going to go on this one right now. Now, let's move right along. Let's talk about the Rose Bowl for a minute. Interesting stuff that came out in The Athletic, uh, but it's not just from them. Sports Media Watch, etc. has pointed out that this year's Rose Bowl matchup, Penn State and Utah, drew the lowest viewership that they have had in game history. Now, is it because they didn't have big-time brands? Is it because the game was on January 2nd? Is it, you know, there's there's a myriad of factors here. Uh, one, it was rainy. So it was not nearly as beautiful on your television as usual. It was the lead-in for a Monday night football game. It, it's There's all kinds of things that didn't exactly make it must-see TV, right? Uh, 10.2 million viewers on ESPN. It was down 40% from last year's Ohio State-Utah broadcast, uh, which was 16.6 million. The previous Rose Bowl low was 13.6 million for Stanford and Iowa in 2016. Now, the Rose Bowl was still, this athletic article states, still the most watched non-semifinal bowl of the season. Uh, the other ones, of course, the Sugar Bowl, 9.1 million, the Orange Bowl, 8.7 million, uh, and then Tulane's dramatic 46 to 45 comeback over USC in the Cotton Bowl, which was just before the Rose Bowl. Uh, it drew only 4.2 million average viewers. That is the lowest of any New Year's Six Bowl uh, since the format began in 2014, since ESPN entered into that contract with the CFP. It's pretty rough. I mean, the Cotton Bowl had uh, lower ratings, lower numbers, than the Gator Bowl and the Cheez-It Bowl this year. Now, the Gator Bowl had South Carolina and Notre Dame, obviously big brands. The Cheez-It Bowl had Florida State and Oklahoma, obviously big brands but you're bringing two big brands together. How much of a fan base is there for Tulane? And this is why the CFP tries to keep out teams like Tulane. They try to keep out these G5s, right? Uh, the Rose Bowl, like the reason that the Pac-12 is so eh about expansion is, okay, we brought in Utah. How much of a fanship is there? How much of a viewership is there for a team like Utah? Right, they, they don't bring a whole lot to the table when it comes to the Rose Bowl, when it comes to your TV games. 
it's it's pretty nuts to think about. Uh, but that is a big, big reason. But at the same time, you have to allow them access because they can build it. What Utah brought viewership-wise back in the Mountain West days, nothing compared to what they bring now. They are an established brand at this point. On the other side, you look at Penn State, obviously Penn State's a pretty big brand. They are nothing compared to Ohio State. Just nothing compared to Ohio State. It's not even close. Not even close. Um, As far as ratings go, let's make sure that we specify that. So big-time stuff from the Rose Bowl there, something to look forward to or look, uh, look ahead to once we get into negotiations for the new CFP contract uh, heading into that 2025-2026 season. Next on the docket that we're going to talk about, uh, Sam Hartman. Sam Hartman decided he is going to play at Notre Dame. Pull it up on the screen here. Sam Hartman said, onward, hashtag go Irish. So he has uh, made it official. He's got his Notre Dame gear on. He's uh, he's taking the pictures. He looks good. Um Moving from Notre or from Wake Forest to Notre Dame, I don't think is that big of a difference, right? Like I think I think this is a good move for Sam Hartman. We talked about it a little bit before, but does it? I mean, does this make Notre Dame an instant like playoff contender? I mean, maybe I guess hey, he still needs people to throw to. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, what was Sam Hartman this year if he didn't have At Perry? If he didn't have guys like that? I'm I'm curious. I'm very curious. Uh, so we'll see what this means, but I, I certainly think it's a step forward. This is a bridge quarterback for Notre Dame uh, because they do, of course, have the five-star coming in, CJ, uh, for the next season. So good way to bridge the gap between the two. They do still have Tyler Buckner. We'll see whether or not Tyler Buckner decides to stick around. Of course, Drew Pine decided to transfer to Arizona State. Where, uh, where he will likely get a, a much better opportunity at playing time. So, uh, let's move ahead. Let's talk for just a moment. Da, 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 da. Michigan coaching candidates, if Jim Harbaugh were to decide to leave. You say, wait, I thought he made a statement that he's not leaving. No, he did not make a statement that he is not leaving. What he made a statement saying is... He does not expect to leave, or he is expecting to coach. Uh, He told a Charlotte TV news outlet, I think I will be coaching Michigan next season. So everybody, of course, flips out about that. And then he releases a statement, a public statement today, acknowledging the speculation. And he said, I expect that I will be enthusiastically coaching Michigan in 2023. It said, well, that's a step forward from I think. It's still a large step backward from where Harbaugh was last winter when he said that he told A.D. Ward Manuel he was done chasing NFL jobs after pursuing the Minnesota Vikings position. So, the statement, of course, says, uh, I'm aware of the rumors and speculation. Over the past days, college and NFL teams have great interest in all our personnel, from players to coaches to staff, and I truly believe this is a testament to the strength of our University of Michigan football program. As I stated in December, while no one knows what the future holds, that should tell you something, uh, I expect that I will be enthusiastically coaching Michigan in 2023. I've spoken with President Santa Ono and Athletic Director Ward Manuel and appreciate their support of me and our program. 
Our mission as Wolverines continues, and we are prepping for the 2023 season with great passion and enthusiasm. As our legendary coach Bo Schembechler said, those who stay will be champions. That is a non-denial denial. He did not say anywhere in there that I will not be coaching in the NFL. He said he expects to be the Michigan football coach, which means that we get to play the speculation game. And when we play the speculation game, we talk about the possible people that could replace him as the head coach of the Michigan Wolverines. So who are some of those names? Well, let's start on the staff. I think one of the reasons why Josh Gaddis left last season to join the Miami Hurricanes is because Mike Hart was going to be the interim head coach. He was going to be the guy that took over after Jim Harbaugh. Now, he is the running backs coach there. Um, I don't know if his health situation maybe changes that. Remember, he collapsed during the, was it Nebraska game? Was it? I can't remember which game it was. Uh, Indiana. It was the Indiana game. So he collapsed uh, in the first half of the Indiana game on the sideline. Uh, I don't know what the situation is there, so I don't know if that changes anything. Uh, Sharon Moore, he is the offensive coordinator, or the co-OC. Everybody seems to love this guy. Offensive line coach, great recruiter. Uh, is he prepared for something like this? That could be very, very interesting. All right, so those are the guys on staff that maybe you got to pay attention to. Uh, moving on from there, let's talk about ones that are outside of the program that uh, could be interesting. A name that gets brought up for every big job. I do want to go on and bring up Dave Aranda at Baylor. Now, obviously, he coached in the Big Ten at one point. He was the defensive coordinator at Wisconsin before he went down to LSU. Would he be interested in something like that? Would a 6-7 and seven season this year uh, wipe off any of the shine on him? I don't think so. I think he's still a a hot commodity, if you can maybe talk him into it. And I do believe that people understand there is a difference between coaching at Michigan and coaching at Baylor. Like, there just is. So, along with that, let's talk about some of these others. Let's stay in the Big 12. Matt Campbell at Iowa State. Now, this is an interesting one, uh, for sure. Like, Matt Campbell is a, a good, good head coach, but he had a bad year. So, he had a bad year. Does that wipe the shine off of him? Do people think that he all of a sudden uh, doesn't know how to coach just because the personnel was not fully developed yet this year? Uh, this is a team that had a really good defense, played a ton of one-possession games, and lost a lot of them. Basically all of them other than maybe the Iowa game. The guy knows how to coach. I think he'd be just fine in that role. Just fine. Let's talk about two that are being brought up, that are on all the message boards, etc., that are not going to be the head coaches. That would be Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer will not be the head coach of the Michigan Wolverines. That ain't happening. It's just not. And then the other would be Minnesota head coach P.J. Fleck. I, I think P.J. Fleck is a phenomenal football coach in the right situation. I don't believe the Michigan is the correct situation for him. So, um, so those are the ones that won't be. Then you got the two Big 12 guys. You got the two guys that are on staff. Now, what about two that would be actually really good fits? That would maybe 
fit with the Michigan standard, that would maybe fit with exactly what it is that Michigan is looking to do uh, with their football program and their university. Dave Clawson from Wake Forest, he everybody thought that he wanted that Stanford job. Now, the Stanford job has changed over the years, so I don't know if that's something that he was still interested in. Obviously not, because he didn't take the job. He's losing Sam Hartman. He's losing a lot of guys that have had a really, really good career with him, and, and it's been a great four seasons for Dave Clawson. He's done good things at Wake Forest. I think Michigan aligns with what he does academically, uh, culturally, etc. That could be a really, really fun one to go with. Uh, the other one, the guy that recently resigned at Stanford, David Shaw. He replaced Harbaugh once upon a time. And he did fantastic things. <coughs> now, obviously, things have not gone well over the past few years. So that would be something to pay attention to, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, I think that we could certainly find a way to uh, talk yourself into that, right? David Shaw is still a good football coach. It's not like he forgot how to, how to coach football. I mean, the NFL guys love him. Not to mention, he was at a, uh, a higher-end academic school, much like Michigan uh, prides themselves on being. So, yeah, this is somebody that aligns both culturally uh, and, and athletically with what Michigan tries to do. So the names to look out for, to me, the ones that fit the best, Dave Clawson and David Shaw. The other two to pay attention to from outside the program, Matt Campbell and Dave Aranda. Then, of course, you got the two in-house. You've got Sharon Moore and Mike Hart. And then, of course, the two that it's not going to be, and that would be P.J. Fleck and Urban Meyer. Those two are not going to happen. Uh, is there anybody else that I forgot to put on here? Nope, not a thing. Not a thing. So that works out. All right. Let's hit this thing on the other side. We're going to do an Orange Bowl recap for uh, my buddy, the flying Hawaiian, who felt like he got snubbed the other day. Uh, but we'll do an Orange Bowl recap. We're going to talk about whether or not George Klyovkov lied and got caught in it. We're going to talk maybe a little expansion talk. Yeah. And then, of course, we got Bobby Petrino. We got some other things. So, But first, let's, uh, let's do this thing. Let's check out some things you should know about. College football is back, and BetUS TV has you covered. Every Tuesday and Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we've got expert game analysis to help you make informed decisions before kickoff, only on the BetUS TV College Football Channel. Visit winningcureseverything.com to find everything you need to know about us, including full shows in video or podcast form, gambling picks, merch, the gear we use, and more. If you want more content from me, Gary, visit BetUSTV.com. I host the How to Gamble on Sports Show and, from August through January, the BetUS College Football Show. You can subscribe to both on YouTube. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever's your favorite podcast app. And if your app allows it, leave a five-star written review. Visit the Winning Cures Everything web store to get all kinds of football shirts, hats, hoodies, mugs, and more. Visit winningcureseverything.com store to see what all we've added.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And now, back to the show. Let me go ahead and tell you right quick about the Flow Sports. Uh, over 25,000 sports matches like MMA, D3 football, etc. Click the link in the description. You can find out more over there. Uh, along with that, I'm going to tell you, thank you for watching. <laughs> thank you for listening to the podcast, of course. Uh, if you would, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and like the video. Uh, hit that subscribe button for us. And, of course, share out the show. Tell your friends about it. <coughs> I'm coughing like crazy today. I mean, it is just bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. All right. We got we to gotta move into uh, some game recaps. We got to talk about what's going on here. Orange Bowl recap. Let's move it on ahead. Tennessee 31, Clemson 14. That's right. Tennessee smoked them down, at least points-wise, right? Uh, you look at the box score, and Joe Milton had himself a day. 19 out of 28, 251 yards, three touchdowns. And then, of course, they ran the ball pretty well. Jalen Wright, 11 carries for 89 yards. Uh, he averaged 8.1 yards per carry. He did have a long 42. Jabari Small, 13 carries for 38 yards. Uh, Joe Milton ran it 11 times for only five yards. Uh, yeah, yeah, it just whatever. Like, pretty good, pretty decent, I guess. Um but you look on the other side, Cade Klubnik, 30 out of 54 passing, 320 yards, and two interceptions. That was not good. Uh, and then running the ball, Clemson ran it 45 times for 164 yards and one touchdown. That's 3.6 yards per clip. So those numbers, they ran a lot more plays than Tennessee did, and they did very little with it. Obviously, you see the 14 points on the board. Well, let's look at the play-by-play. You see, they get into scoring position here. Uh, so first drive, turnover on down. Second drive, missed field goal. Third drive, missed field goal. Fourth drive, missed field goal. They were still only down 7 nothing at that point. But then Tennessee scores a five-play, 75-yard touchdown drive. So they go up 14 to nothing. And then Clemson comes back down, and they have to kick a field goal. And they, they actually make this one. So it's 14-3 at that point. Uh, at the end of the half, it was still 14-3. Clemson gets the ball out of the second half, and they drive it down, and they kick a field goal. That's right, another field goal. So this is uh, they're 2 out of 5 at this point on field goals, and they're still only down 14-6. to six. Now, you move on ahead, and again, Clemson gets it down there, and they turn the ball over on downs. Tennessee comes back, scores a quick touchdown in a minute 22 to make it 21-6, to six. And then Clemson actually scores a touchdown. They make it 21-14. to And then you run into issues, right? You have a Tennessee touchdown, again, very quickly. One minute, 27-second drive uh, to go up 28-14. to And then Clemson throws an interception. Tennessee has to punt. Clemson has to punt. Tennessee scores a field goal. And then Clemson throws an interception on the last drive of the game. Uh, and then, of course, Tennessee, like, nils it out. 
There are going to be Tennessee fans that absolutely are hyped up about this game. They're going to be hyped up about this team going into next season because Joe Milton all of a sudden looked fantastic, and Clemson couldn't do anything against that defense, even though they had Jeremy Banks out and everything else. Yes, the future does look bright for Tennessee. But let's not overhype what this Clemson team was, okay? This was not a great vintage Clemson team. Uh, I think there are a lot more questions that we have to ask about Dabo Sweeney's bunch and what they're going to be going forward. Now, that's just my two cents on it. Uh, I don't know that winning this game... Now, obviously, I don't know that Tennessee uh, would have won this game in many other years, especially any of them leading up to this one. But, man, did they capitalize this year. They did what they needed to do to get that win, even though Clemson ran, what, 20 more plays than they did? Uh, They capitalized. Tennessee did what they were supposed to do. So, cheers to the volunteers. Cheers to the flying Hawaiian. That's what we're talking about. All right. Let's talk about whether or not the Pac-12 commissioner lied about something. This is interesting, right? I'm uh, I'm real curious in, in you guys' thoughts on this. The Athletic ran this about a week ago, and nobody talked about it at all. Um, it says, well, here, let, let's just go on and pull it up. George Klyovkov, like, what are you doing here? The Athletic had an article out by Christian Capel on December 30th. So, of course, it gets lost in all of the New Year's muck. But it says, Pac-12 commissioner interested in possible Big 12 partnership before college football expansion feud. Hold up just a second. Didn't, didn't we see him come out and just flat out say that, oh, that's not how it went. Uh, the we we turned the Big Twelve down. We told them that our media rights would it was it was going to be impossible. Okay, well, let's see what happened here. It appears that they got FOIA requests, so that's good. It says before the Big Twelve and the Big Twelve engaged in a public feud regarding the most recent round of college football expansion and whether it might include one conference poaching teams from the other. Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov was intrigued by the personal, or excuse me, by the possibility of partnering with the Big 12, according to an email obtained via public records request by the Athletic. It says, "Here's what you need to know." It says the June 30th decision by USC and UCLA to leave the Pac-12 for the Big 10 sent the Pac-12 scrambling to secure its future as a conference. It says the Big 12 is losing Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC as early as 2024. And it said a partnership between the Pac-12 and the Big 12 did not materialize, and the public tenor between the two conference commissioners grew sour in late July. That's what you need to know. Basically, the way that this went down is both of them started making some, eh, how about we just say less than professional comments in the public. Like, things that they would say to the media were, eh, not great, right? Klyovkov uh, said at the Pac-12 Media Day, the Big 12 asked whether we would be interested in merging, and we explained to them the financial reasons and the contractual reasons related to existing media deals that would make it impossible for us to merge with them. However, he sent an email, or there was an email sent July 7th, where uh, this story says he seemed more open-minded. 
Now, this was, of course, a week after the USC-UCLA news broke. Um, but Klyovkov sent an email to Anna Marie Kaus, who is the president of the University of Washington and the new chair of the Pac-12's executive committee, along with Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine. Uh, he's another executive committee member. In that email, Klyovkov outlined his messaging strategy for a Zoom meeting scheduled for the following day with Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark, uh, the Texas Tech president, and the Big 12 Board of Directors Chair uh, Lawrence Chauvinek and Kevin Sweeney, the Big 12's longtime outside general counsel. It said, we are open to discussing a strategic relationship with the Big 12 that could help both conferences, and we have no preconceived notions about what would be possible or not. We think it would be worth exploring. Now, Klyovkov mentioned he had informed Yormark that he had also spoken with the ACC and that the ACC commissioner knows that we are talking to the Big 12. Um, this is interesting, right? Because if I'm the Pac-12 leadership, if I am uh, the president of one of these Pac-12 schools, this is not great for, for me if I'm a Pac-12 president. If I am looking at possibilities to move around, to maybe not get stuck in a long-term deal with the Pac-12, this could be a reason why I would want to leave. If you have George Klyovkov just coming out and telling blatant lies, now obviously some of these presidents already knew that he was lying, but why would you come out and tell the media all of these things that are just not true? I mean, it's it's quite incredible. Now, who knows what's going to happen with the media deal that the Pac-12 ends up getting? Are they going to be willing to give up exposure for more dollars for their member institutions? Do their member institutions care about exposure? Do they care about athletics at all? Obviously, they do at least a little bit. But I'm I'm very intrigued in this. Uh, you need to go read the article. I mean, there's there's a lot in here. Um, it's it's going to be. It's going to be interesting. I will say that. So, George Klyovkov. Mm-mm-mm. You know there's always a paper uh, paper trail, buddy. Always a paper trail. Good gracious. All right. Let's discuss this right quick. The Pac-12 or the Big 12? Where will Fresno State end up? Now, that's a good question, right? Uh, when you look at this, I, I got to tell you, there was a statement, or a, a, well, here, let's go on and pull it up on the screen. City leaders urge Pac-12, Big 12 conferences to consider Fresno State. It says, in reflection of both its national ranking as well as its long-standing athletic success, Fresno Mayor Jerry Dyer and City Council member, uh, member Tyler Maxwell announced Wednesday their plan to introduce a resolution urging Fresno State to be admitted into a Power 5 conference. It says, uh, many fans believe that a move into the Pac-12 makes not only geographic sense, but competitive sense as well, citing Fresno State's storied athletic history as well as its overall national ranking as an institution. Uh, U.S. News & World Report has, for the past five years, named Fresno State third among national public universities for graduation rate performance. And obviously, there's a lot of different ways that you can spin some of these numbers. But let's let's talk about this. Let's Let's figure out exactly how... Big 12 or Pac-12 expansion would look. The Big 12 is obviously interested in the money aspect of athletics. 
Now, they've got really good universities. Obviously, that's a perk. That helps. But it's not going to help you a whole lot if you're a really good university and you don't bring in a bunch of eyeballs. That doesn't do a whole lot. Do you think ESPN is going to pay Rice more just because they have a really good U.S. News and World ranking? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Um, so I wrote down some of these numbers. The Pac-12 has long, uh, has long been considered uh, one of the, uh, I, I, not a bastion of academic prowess, but you, you get the point here. They are, the Pac-12 likes to be in like company. At least the presidents of those schools do. They want finer academic institutions to be included in their conference. They don't want it to just be a free-for-all. They don't want to just bring in anybody. The other option for the Pac-12 to bring in is San Diego State. San Diego State is ranked number 151 in the U.S. News and World Rankings. Now, there's a few others. Obviously, they've already got uh, Oregon State. Oregon State is tied with San Diego State at number 151. Washington State up in Pullman is number 212. But basically, everybody else is like top 120. The majority of them are top 100. Yeah, right? Um, I believe that Arizona State is like number 121, etc. Uh, Fresno is number 251 in the U.S. News and World Rankings. Now, you can talk about graduation rate. You can talk about uh, national championships as far as baseball is concerned. You can talk about uh, all kinds of different things. But, eh. I, they, see, one of the things that they, uh, that they brought up here uh, and again, we'll pull it back up on the screen. It says, in addition to both the university rankings and athletic history, the release also cites Fresno State's world-class education programs in promoting the economy of not only the Central Valley, but the nation and the world in regards to food security. Um, look, I, I look at it this way. like Just because a, a city or a university itself pushes to be included in a Power Five conference, that doesn't exactly mean that they are going to get there. Obviously, there are others that are wanting it as well, but the one thing that Fresno does have going for it is it is a West Coast school, and that is something that the Big 12 has stated that they are looking for in their next round of expansion, whenever that may be. Brett Yormark has said he wants that fourth time zone. Now, you can get some of that with BYU, right, in Utah. You've got some of that, but you're wanting... Uh, a sister school or two to be able to come in and and make that much more, uh, I guess, pliable, I guess would be the word I'm looking for here. Uh, so when you look at this, um, because there's others like Memphis and SMU and Colorado State, et cetera, like there's a lot of schools that would like to be included in the Power Five. Does the Pac-12 go for it? Do they shoot for it? I don't believe so. I don't think they do. Um, I think the Pac-12 goes for San Diego State. I think the Big 12 might go after Fresno State because they want that, right? They want that that market. I think it's a good market. I think Fresno is a good brand, but we'll see. We'll see. We will see what ends up happening with that. Let's uh, let's go on and hit one more ad, and then on the backside, we're going to talk Bobby Petrino for just a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, Liam Cohen and whether or not he's going to take that Kentucky job. And uh, we'll talk CFP expansion to 16. We, we still got a few more things to discuss. Let's check out some things you should know about. Follow the show on Twitter at Winning Cures. And you can follow Gary at GaryWCE. 
You can also follow on Facebook. Got your own podcast or web show? Looking to start one? Or you're just curious how we look and sound so good? Well, we've got all the gear that we use listed on our gear page on the website. If you order using our links, you'll be supporting the show too. Subscribe on YouTube to get not only full Winning Cures Everything shows, but individual segments and other goodies as well. We're over 6,000 subscribers, and our goal by the end of the year is 7,500. If you're interested in advertising on a show that reaches over 80,000 unique football fans per month during the season, send an email to Gary at winningcureseverything.com, and we'll put together a plan that best fits you or your business. And now, back to the show. All right, let me go on and tell you. Again, thank you for consuming the show. Uh, tell your friends about it, share the show out, all that good stuff. Uh, let me tell you about Valtimary Surf Company. They are fantastic. Got great material, got great designs. It's a collegiate town apparel company. Go and check them out, valtimarysurfco.com. There's a link in the description. You use the promo code GARY10. It's going to get you 10% off of your order. That's right. G-A-R-Y-1-0. You'll get 10% off your order. But uh, but click that link. Check out the designs. They'll make custom designs for you, too. So if they don't have the town that you are looking for, they will help out. So, Valtimary Surfco, check them out. Uh, again, let me remind you, the Bet U.S. College Football Show. I host that. Uh, we have a show next Monday. That's right, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We are talking National Championship Prop Bets. That's right, Georgia TCU. It's going to be a good time. Go and check it out. Subscribe to that channel. There's a link in the description for that one as well. All right, now let's move ahead. We're going to pull it up on the screen here. You know what I got to do. Bobby Petrino is the Texas A&M offensive coordinator. And goodness gracious sakes alive in the morning. Uh, I put out a video about it yesterday. I mean, what, what are we... What are we doing? I'm just, yeah. I <laughs> do. I think that Bobby Petrino is a better offensive coordinator than Jimbo Fisher. Right now, yes, I think he is. Um, T. Bob Abair said it best, right? Just the other day, uh, his tweet said the thing about the Petrino hire is that it is undeniably comedic, uh, potentially disastrous and understandably frustrating for Texas A&M fans. But I do think the Texas A&M offense ends up better. I think Bobby Petrino is currently a better offensive mind than Jimbo Fisher. He said, how much better remains to be seen, so this is arguably not even really a compliment, as it isn't hard to be better than what we saw out of A&M offensively this season. <coughs> so, I, I brought up in that other video all the different numbers that Petrino had in FCS. You would have thought, if this guy is such an offensive genius, if Texas A&M is willing, now I think the reason why they hired him is because he is somebody that can go toe-to-toe with Jimbo. I don't even know that Jimbo necessarily made this hire. But I do believe that this is somebody that is not going to take Jimbo's crap. That's what I believe. This is somebody that is going to come in with an offensive game plan, and he's going to be pretty successful at it. Now, how how many kids do they keep? Uh, what does the culture look like? Because I also, in that video, go over the coaching staff situation there, and it is not pretty. I will, I will certainly tell you that. Um, it's a weird culture that they are building under Jimbo Fisher. Uh, this is... 
I, I got to admit, this is a weird one to me. Why they would make this higher. And yet, here we are. Like, it's, this is obviously somebody that I think, I think Jimbo respects. Uh, Bobby Petrino has always had a good offensive mind. I mean, it, my gosh, Lamar Jackson was his quarterback. Like, he, he won a Heisman Trophy with Bobby Petrino. But also, if you don't have somebody like Lamar Jackson, then what do you do? Right? At his last year uh, at Louisville in 2018, they had dropped from number three in yards per play down to number 96 in yards per play. And then this guy has not been in FBS football since 2018. Do you know how much has changed since 2018? I mean, it's a completely different sport. So I'm, I'm interested in this. Uh, if Jimbo was going to bring in this guy to modernize his offense, uh, I don't know how modern this is going to be. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Let's, uh, let's move ahead. Let's talk about another topic here. Liam Cohen, the Rams' offensive coordinator, has come out and said that he is undecided about the Kentucky offensive coordinator job. Now, the interesting part about this, obviously, we're going to pull it up on the screen here. Uh, ESPN reported like a month ago that Cohen was going to leave L.A. to return to Lexington. Things obviously have not gone well with the Rams this year. That team is not very good. But, of course, Matt Stafford has been injured for a large portion of the season. Uh, Jordan Rodriguez... Uh, not, I'm not even sure who this is. Um, that's nothing against her. I mean, you know what? I'll just pull that up, and we'll just see. L.A. Rams, good stories for the athletic. So there you go. All right. So Jordan says, Rams OC Liam Cohen says he has not yet made a decision about whether he's going back to Kentucky, though offer is on the table for him to do so. He wants to finish out the season with his guys and then take a few days with his family after that to consider what will be best. Okay, so this is uh, this is interesting, right? Chris Mortensen uh, announced, or not announced, I guess reported that Cohen was going to be taking that Kentucky OC job. I said in December, like after a, a couple of weeks, that, hey, if he was going to take this job, why would he not already go on and take it? Like if, if the Rams are not happy with him, then... I don't think they would care if he goes ahead and leaves because this season is shot anyway. If he's not happy with the Rams, why would he stick around? Why not just go ahead and head to Kentucky where you can get a head start on recruiting, etc.? On the other side, like even if he was going to accept the job, why not go ahead and accept the job and just coach out the rest of the season with your guys? You can do that. And something, something ain't adding up here. Now, something's definitely definitely weird about this uh, this Cohen situation. Um, I I mean, Kentucky does have a good quarterback coming in. Like Devin Leary is like he's he's going to be the guy, which is a little bit surprising that he decided to go to Kentucky. But regardless, uh, did he go to Kentucky? You know, I guess expecting to be coached by Liam Cohen. I mean, possibly. I don't know. There's there's weird things afoot in Lexington. Uh, but if this was a done deal, I, I figured it would have been done by now. Now, who knows? We'll see what ends up happening. But, you know, Liam Cohen uh, left 
after the 2021 season to go back to the NFL because, you know, he, he went from the Rams as the quarterback's coach to Kentucky for one season. And then he went back to the Rams as the OC, and now he's going to go back to Kentucky? I think one thing that we have figured out in this age of college football is coaches want to be in the NFL. They don't want to be in college if they don't have to. So if the Rams are not looking to fire him, I would not anticipate that he's leaving. Just a thought. So we'll see what happens there. But, man, uh, you know Kentucky fans have got to be fired up and and pretty irritated about all of this uh, because, I mean, we're getting closer and closer to uh, the actual signing day, and you got no OC. And if you got no OC, is Devin Leary really going to hang around? Uh, We'll see. We'll see what ends up happening. All right. Is the college football playoff going to expand to 16 really soon? Is that going to happen? Dennis Dodd at CBS Sports put out a really interesting article. Uh, and it's there's a lot that goes into this, right? So we'll pull it up on your screen here so you can see what's going on. Why college football playoff expansion could push out to 16 teams uh, sooner than you may think. It says, some invested parties already prefer a 16-team format, and future CFP rights holders might as well. And let's pause this. Let's, let's get that crap out of here. Um, when a college football playoff working group submitted options for an expanded playoff field 20 months ago, it says, the main surprise was that the CFP was that far down the road considering expansion whatsoever. The contract for a 14 bracket had five years left to run. That was locked in. It, the second biggest shock is that the working group had considered as many as 16 teams. And now, so we finally got the 12-team model, right? And even then, we're still kind of second-guessing it, right? Because the way that they've got it set up, the top four conference champions all get a bye, and the top six conference champions all get in? Okay. Um, I mean, let's let's look at some of these conference champions, right? Like, Kansas State would not have gotten a bye, but Clemson and Utah would have. Well, Clemson lost to Tennessee by 17. Did they really deserve a bye? And then he got Utah, who lost by 14 in the Rose Bowl. Now, granted, Cam Rising got hurt in that game, so maybe it would have gone a little bit different. But you're talking about the Big Ten's number three team that just beat the Pac-12 champion. I mean, you're talking about, uh, I guess, the SEC's number three team that just beat the ACC champion. Do we really need to do that? If we move to 16, would that get rid of some of this uh, this cockamamie crap that they've got going on here? I mean, I understand wanting to give at least some of these teams a fighting chance. Uh, and if you're at if you're hosting a game at home, like maybe. But like, yeah. I guess if you keep you if you give Utah a bye, then that keeps them in the field longer. Keeps one part of the country in because that that might would have been the only team. That was in the field from the Pac-12 this year. It would it might have been the only West Coast team. Now, if you expand it to 16, then you're looking at even more, right? So this this goes through. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, this goes through a few more things here. Um, let's see. The MAC commissioner said, "I think 16 is the number. Four was better than two. 12 is better than four. 16 is better than, uh, than uh, whatever. 12." Uh, Craig Thompson, who is the outgoing Mountain West commissioner, said 16 is the most natural because nobody gets a bye at that point. right? Everybody plays. Uh, TCU coach Sonny Dykes said 
Uh, I've thought a 16-team playoff is superior. I've thought that way for a long time. And what you do, now the, the first one that actually said anything about this was in July. Ohio State's athletic director, Gene Smith, uh, was quoted by ESPN as saying, 16 just seems to be out there. You can't really ignore it. Yeah, you got more games. Like, it, that's more inventory. That's more money. Now, all of the ones that have come out and said anything for this article are all G5. So, obviously, they would stand to benefit quite a bit. Um, but uh, my my issue here is a couple of different things. All right, so so let's, let's move over to... Um, what I was talking about before, the the ones that would have made it into this field. Uh, it says, now project the field out to 16 teams. Not only would Tulane have made it, but so would Oregon, Oregon State, Florida State, and Washington this year. It says the Pac-12 has not put a team in the CFP over the last six seasons. In a 12-team bracket, it would get one team placed. In a 16-team bracket, uh, based on this year's CFP rankings, the Pac-12 would have four teams competing for the national title. Now, I believe that USC would have been in there somewhere. But regardless, what we're looking at is just bananas. Uh, my view is we needed to bring people into the national championship, said SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, who did not speak specifically on a 16-team bracket. He said, I don't think it's healthy for college football and college football globally that a West Coast team has not been in the playoffs since 2016. It's a national game. Okay, so I tweeted out about this. Let's talk about this national game, okay? The regular season is a playoff. The Pac-12 has had opportunities to get teams into the playoff field. If you go back and actually look at the situations that they were in, they were in playoff situations multiple times. That's, uh, the Pac-12 was in those situations. Like, this is, it's it's so interesting to me. Um, remember, the 2020 season, there wasn't really a Pac-12 candidate, right? USC was undefeated until the Pac-12 championship game, and then, even then, they weren't a great team, but they would have been undefeated at 6-0 if they had not lost to uh, Oregon, in the Pac-12 title game, an Oregon team that wasn't even technically supposed to be there. That's an Oregon team that had lost to Oregon State. In 2021, every Pac-12 team had at least three losses, if not more. Back in 2019, number six Oregon lost on the road to Arizona State in November. You can't do that if you're vying for a playoff berth. But then in the Pac-12 title game, number five Utah Lost to Oregon. So then Oregon goes to the Rose Bowl, and everybody's happy and fun, and it's Oregon and Wisconsin and whatever, right? In 2018, I believe that USC had two losses in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but if, if, aside from them, like USC might have had two, but everybody else had at least three. There was no viable option. They played their way out of the playoff. What what good is having USC or Oregon or Washington or whoever from the West Coast? What good is it to get them into the playoff for a game? Which one out of what I guess if you're doing sixteen, it's going to be eight games. You're going to get them in for one game, and then they'll be gone. 
because that's what happens. I just I, I don't I don't really understand why they. Let me take that back. I do understand why they believe it is so important to get uh, the country involved in this, and we see it with college basketball. We see it with the NFL, et cetera. The more teams that you get longer in the season, the more games they watch, the bigger the audiences, et cetera. Right? The more interest in the sport there is, and if you can ever get some kind of an upset like we had with TCU over Michigan. Well, it kind of changes the narrative. It kind of changes things, right? I, if we are changing this sport to be only about money, and that is absolutely what we're doing. We're doing it with the players. We're doing it with, but it, this started back in the early 80s when Georgia and Oklahoma sued the NCAA to get their TV rights. It started the path then. It moved to 1992 when, or well, I guess it was 91, when Roy Kramer pushed the NCAA so that they could create the SEC championship game. It's, it's always been about adding more money. Everything is about adding more value, adding money, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, this is what's best for the sport. And by best for the sport, I mean it's what will bring more money to the sport, which in turn will bring more eyeballs. As far as the health of the sport, the uh, the sanctity of the sport, if you will, eh, I mean, that's another discussion, right? Is this really what's best? Do we want college athletes playing 17 games? I mean, this is going to lead to a whole lot of different things. If they're going to do something like this, especially this 12-team thing, uh, you're going to have to move to a running clock. You're going to have to take some of these plays out of the games. you got to find a way to do it. We, Chris and I, I believe, talked years ago about this, about moving to where uh, the clock runs on incompletions. The clock continues to run even when you go out of bounds. Like all those types of things because you can take out like two to three games worth of plays from a, a full season if you just keep the clock going. I think that's the biggest thing that they got to do. But man, I got a little fired up there. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, this thing's going to go over an hour and I didn't intend for that. Uh, but regardless, um, yeah, so let's let's take a look at that. How did the conference champions do this year? You know, uh, Kansas State lost by 25, Clemson lost by 17, Utah lost by 14. I mean, did any of those deserve buys? Are we, I mean, what, what are we talking about? Ah, all right, let's move ahead. Let's move ahead. We've got a few more things to discuss. Here's a little segment that I'm going to do uh, basically every day now. Or every time we do a show. I don't know what in the world that was about. But we're going to do this basically every show. Uh, five things you need to know. And that number might change as we go along. But this is five things that you need to know. Number one, Tennessee has hired a new offensive coordinator. And that would be Joey Housel, uh, who is the current quarterback's coach. Now, Housel will now be the offensive coordinator. He has been, um, he's been with Josh Heupel for what, fifteen years, I guess, or ten years, or however long. It's it's been a really long time. He knows Heupel's offense. I think he's going to do a perfectly fine job. Um, I mean, the Tennessee offense continued to move right along even without Alex Golish. So I would imagine Tennessee is going to be in good hands. Number two, UCF has hired UAB's offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Darren Henshaw. Now, he is a former UCF quarterback. Uh, 
I mean, it's kind of legacy stuff there, I guess you could say. Uh, the guy knows what he's doing. That UAB offense moved incredibly well. Uh, they were killed by the turnover bug and the injury bug this year. But uh, but he has done some really, really good things at UAB. Uh, Dylan Hopkins is the quarterback there. Guy was awesome. So I would expect that, uh, that he's going to be pretty good in Gus Malzahn's offense. Now, whether or not he gets to call plays, that could be something else. We'll see. Ball State running back Carson Steele has committed to UCLA. And you want to talk about a perfect fit for that Chip Kelly offense? Carson Steele was awesome. You know, he's the long, blonde-haired dude uh, that is just a bowling ball in the MAC. I mean, the guy is awesome. Uh, And what Chip Kelly likes to do with those zone reads, man, he is going to be able to light it up. Uh, I expect a big, big season from him next year. Uh, Number four, Missouri has hired Fresno State Offensive Coordinator Kirby Moore. Now, that is Kellen Moore's little brother, of course, the Offensive Coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys, the former Boise State quarterback. Um, Look, Kirby Moore has not worked outside of the West Coast. So him coming in to run Eli Drinkwitz's offense is surprising, to say the least. And I'm not sure that I fully understand it. One, if you're an offensive guy, do you really want to go work with Eli Drinkwitz? Right? Like, Eli is a pretty smart offensive mind, uh, but he's kind of been up against it here lately. I think that he's also one of those that's understanding, hey, I can't do this offense thing by myself if I'm the acting head coach. I have other responsibilities that i got to handle. So, we'll see how Kirby Moore does as far as recruiting, etc. Uh, because, I mean, he's only worked on the West Coast. I'm, I'm interested in, in what that's going to look like. Uh, number five. Luke Fickle and Wisconsin have hired Paul Haynes. Um, he was Minnesota's co-defense coordinator and cornerbacks coach. Eh, okay, like I, I think it's like maybe it's making one of your rivals weaker. I guess. Um, I think it, I think it's a good hire. It seems perfectly reasonable to me. Um, I don't think it's you know it's something that's just going to destroy the Minnesota program, but. Obviously, we'll see. We'll see what they end up doing here. Uh, but that is a that's a very interesting hire, if nothing else. All right, we've got an hour. That's right. Uh, do me a favor, go check out betus.com. Go and subscribe to the BetUS College Football Show. Check out Valtimary Surf Company. Check out Flow Sports. And check out winningcureseverything.com. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, whether it be on podcast or on YouTube, do me that favor. Go ahead and knock it out. I would certainly, certainly appreciate it. Uh, And uh, share the show out. Tell your friends about it. We are going to be here, uh, I believe I'm going to be here next Tuesday so that we can react to the Georgia TCU game. Maybe we do it right after the game. I don't know. Maybe we we go live. We just sip on a couple of bourbons and and have a nice discussion. You guys let me know in the comments what you would like. Uh, Because this is your show. You have made the show. Don't forget to toss your city or your town in the comment section or in the chat. Uh, I would love to know where you guys are watching from, for sure. With that said, let's get out of here. You guys take care of yourself, take care of each other, and hopefully, hopefully, all of your tickets cash this week. Thanks for listening to Winning Cures Everything. Make sure and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. And make sure to leave a nice five-star review. You can follow Gary on Twitter, at GaryWCE. And the show is at Winning Cures. Be sure to check out the merch in our web store and share the show. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.